0: Greetings friends and welcome to another podcast from the heart of Spurgeon with me, Jeremy Walker. I'm a pastor in Crawley in West Sussex in the southeast of England. We are looking together at the sermons of Charles Haddon Spurgeon, a man gifted by God for the glory of his triune name, a man well able by the help of the Holy Spirit to exalt Father, Son and Holy Ghost in the ministry of the gospel. If you want to follow along, you can do so on Twitter at Reading Spurgeon, or you can go to mediagratii.org podcasts, find the Spurgeon podcast and sign up for a weekly newsletter where you can see the sermons that we're reading day by day and also our featured sermon for each week. This week, it's Sermon 309. The title is Full Redemption and the text is Exodus 10 and verse 26 and the phrase, there shall not a hoof be left behind, not a hoof shall be left behind. Now, in this sermon, Spurgeon shows his uh, insight, his understanding, his uh, typology, we might say, his appreciation of how uh, there are certain uh, shapes and shadows in the Old Testament which point forward to the blessings of the new covenant in Christ Jesus. Here he's zeroing in on the Exodus and how when the Lord God brought his people up from the land of Egypt out of the house of bondage, he was determined that everything that belonged to him and everything that belonged to those who belonged to him would be brought up, redeemed according to his purpose. And Spurgeon says that this grand quarrel of old is but a picture of God's continual contest with the powers of darkness. God has called his people forth to serve him. Satan seeks to resist him. And if he's compelled to yield one point, he retains his hold upon another. If he gives way, it's inch by inch. Evil is hard in dying. It will not readily be overcome. But this is God's dem- demand. And to the last, says Spurgeon, will he have it. When God says all my people he means the whole of them every one of them and all that my people have possessed all shall come out of the land of Egypt. Christ will have the whole he will not be contented with a part and this he vows to accomplish not a hoof shall be left behind. And so however long and however hard Satan may resist God shall have all his people. And so, says Spurgeon, I want to use the text as an aphorism, which I hope to be enabled to illustrate. God bless it to our souls, he says, this this sort of pithy proverb that he wants to make the, uh, the key point of his sermon. Not a hoof shall be left behind. Christ will have the whole man. Christ will have the whole church. Then he will have the whole of the lost inheritance of his church, and he will indeed have the whole world to serve him. Again, you're going to see something of the way Spurgeon handles and interprets scripture as a whole. You're also going to see something of his eschatology. I don't think it's the clearest expression of it that he has here. Uh, And you might fall more on the one than on the other side uh, as we get to that point. But there's a a beautiful description here. And it it really is uh, lovely to see how Spurgeon is insisting upon the fullness, the completeness of redemption and salvation You may say that uh, Spurgeon's not handling the word of God faithfully. I actually think that he is, and perhaps more colourfully and more helpfully than we're inclined to often today. But let's work through and see if uh, we can provide the evidence for that, if we can prove that uh, Spurgeon is indeed doing what he ought to be doing, or uh, if we can't prove it, at least hopefully we can enjoy and appreciate his attempt so then, not a hoof shall be left behind first of all, Christ will have the whole man. I have to notice he says that he does already possess the whole of his people in their intent and purpose, and that by and by when he has sanctified them wholly, he will then actually possess the whole spirit and soul and body of the man whom he hath purchased with his precious blood. Spurgeon's point is that Christ has died to make you his own. And nothing is going to be uh, lie outside of that. Nothing's going to be left out of that intent. You are now Christ's in principle. And one day you will be Christ's in entirety in practice. Now it is increasingly in practice and in principle, then it will be the whole man. Now, Christ will not allow us then to spare a single sin. Christ will not allow us to neglect a single duty. Christ will not uh, allow any power to be reserved from consecration. And Christ will not allow our hearts to be divided. That's what it means for Christ to have died to save us from our sins, from death and from hell. We will not be permitted to spare a single sin. If we indulge sin, if we love it, if we delight in it, if it is not a plague and a curse to us, we have no reason to conclude that our name is on Christ's breast or that we belong to Christ at all. The mark of a redeemed man is his hatred of all sin, not one pampered lust, one sin in which we we fondly indulge. That's not the same as saying we shall never sin, it's more to do with our attitude to sin, all sin and every sin. And then, on the flip side of that, more positively, no duty is to be neglected. We do not look down at Christ's law and say, such and such a precept is agreeable to me, I will keep it. No, we hate every foolish way and love every right one. All God's precepts concerning all things we count to be right and righteous. And so, we want to walk blamelessly. We leave sin behind and... In its entirety, we pursue righteousness in its entirety. And then, no power is to be reserved from entire consecration. Christ bought the whole man, and the whole man must be devoted to Christ. I am not to use my judgment for the Saviour and let my imagination lie idle. I am not to reserve for sin the freedom of my will while I give to God my conscience. But the whole man is to be given up to Christ. He is not enlisted in Jesus Christ's army who has not given up to Christ head and hands and feet and heart and all. Everything that we are, all that we are, everything that we can be and do belongs now to him. From the crown of our head to the sole of our foot we belong to Christ or else we do not belong to him at all. The entire nature is surrendered to the Lord Jesus the demand is imperative, and to an aphorism, to a proverb, it shall be verified. There shall not a hoof be left behind. You're seeing here again, as he comes back to this text, that he's applying this totality of redemption to the outworking of Christ's salvation in his saving purpose, with regard now to everything that an individual is when redeemed. And then further. Christ will never permit our heart to be divided. Everything must be for him. He won't have half-hearted, lukewarm, divided intent. Not God and mammon, not God and self, not God and pleasure, but God and God only. Christ is not one among the gods. He is not someone who adds a little something while others also make their contribution. He doesn't get a little of our veneration. He doesn't accept a little of our worship as the rest is divided about Christ and Christ only. In our heart's intent, we must come out of that spiritual Egypt, not a hoof left behind. And now he goes back to this uh, more temporal or chronological Uh, emphasis he's already said now the whole of the people are sanctified and set apart and belong to Jesus Christ in intent and purpose but he says remember that this shall be true in reality before long our intention now is that Christ shall have all that no sin will be spared, no duty will be neglected, no power will be reserved, no part of our heart will be uh, given to anyone or anything else. And before long, that will be our entire experience. What we now desire and pursue as a battle, we will soon attain. Yes, one day we shall be perfect. We've worn the image of the earthly, so soon we shall wear the image of the heavenly man." we shall leave behind our sins, there shall be uh, no uh, duty that is in any way difficult or painful or hard to us, all our powers will serve the Lord without any reserve, and our hearts, which now have to fight to hold hard to Christ Jesus, will belong entirely to him. And he says, I want you to remember that not only the soul, but also the body belongs to Jesus Christ. All that we are, the whole man, body, soul, and spirit, all consecrated, all filled with the Spirit, shall stand before the throne and clap its hands and sing the everlasting song of glory unto God forever and ever. Not a hoof shall be left behind. So Spurgeon's good here, covering the whole of this uh, Christian experience and the whole of Christian identity. He's reminding us that when Christ saves a man, he saves that man entirely and that man from that point is seeking that everything he is and has and does may be consecrated to Jesus Christ looking forward to the point in time when that will not just be an intent and a desire and something increasingly attained but a reality that has been perfectly attained and that it includes not just our inward but also our outward man the whole of us everything that we are Body, soul, and spirit, now and forever. And that brings him to the second part of his discourse that this is equally true of the whole church. So each person for whom Christ died will be entirely Christ's, and all those persons for whom Christ died will be so entirely Christ's. Now, Spurgeon is not a universal redemptionist. That is, he does not believe that Jesus Christ died to save everyone. If he did, then he has failed. He believes, yes, he says, in the limitless efficacy of the blood of Christ. He wants to be careful. He doesn't want to say that a single drop of Christ's blood would have been sufficient for the redemption of the whole world. He thinks that may a little bit be a little bit too strained. But he is trying to emphasize the value of the blood. I believe, he says, that there is efficacy enough in the blood of Christ if it be applied to the conscience to save any man and every man. But he wants to emphasize that the design of Christ, the purpose of God in the death of Christ was set and was satisfied, that Christ died to save his people from their sins and therefore everyone for whom Christ died must come in and not a hoof of all his purchased flock shall be left behind. And Spurgeon, as it were, now opens the eye of his imagination, and he says, I think I see before my mind's eye the countless multitudes whom Jesus bought with blood. Then I see the great shepherd and all his sheep, and then I see him in the last tremendous day when the sheep pass again under the hand of him that tells them or or counts them out. And so, first of all, he he ranges far and wide in his imagination. The great shepherd walking in front, leading the entire flock, not one absent, Uh, not one who suffered, not one who has struggled, not one who has been weak, not one who has been needy. There is no category among the sheep which excludes them from the purpose of God. There is no one who will be able to mock Christ and say you could save the strong, but not the weak, the healthy, but not the sick, the vigorous, but not the feeble. Every single one will be brought in. Otherwise, you would impugn the power of God. You would impugn the grace of God. But God is mighty. God is gracious. And all who are saved are finally saved. And so he says, now I see that great shepherd and there all his sheep. And now his focus is on the the wanderings of the sheep, the lostness of the sheep, how the, the enemy of our souls has tried to keep one or another back, how perhaps he's as it were, pointed out to Christ. Well, that one is a particularly blackguardly man. That one is a particularly vile or vulgar woman. That one is particularly uh, far gone. That one is particularly diseased. No, no, says Christ. If they are mine, they are all mine. It does not matter whether they are great sinners in your estimation or in the estimation of the world, or relatively minor ones. It doesn't matter whether they are little or big, whether they are weak or strong. If they belong to me, I will have them. I have shed my blood for them and I will get them and I will keep them. And then in that last tremendous day, when the sheep pass under his hand and he counts them out, he'll be able to say, of all you have given me, I have lost none. None of them have perished. The lion has not devoured them. The cold has not destroyed them. I have brought them all safely here. Not a hoof is left behind. Here's Spurgeon now exulting in the power and in the grace of God. Not only is there the, the challenge and the comfort of thinking that if I am a Christian, all that I am and have has been purchased by Christ for his glory and nothing is being left behind, but as I think about the purposes of God for salvation, I can be confident that Christ will indeed bring in all those for whom he has died, that I do not need to worry about one being left out, that I do not need to doubt the saving intent of God, that this glorious in is now being accomplished and not all the powers of death and hell shall be able to prevent it even for a moment. And now his third point, Uh, and you get the sense perhaps he's having to run on a little bit more, having given perhaps more time to the earlier ones than he might have intended. The third point was to be this. Jesus Christ will not only have all of a man and all the men he bought, but he will have all that ever belonged to these men. There is going to be a restoration of everything that Adam lost. Perhaps you might think of that old hymn, in him, that is in Christ, the tribes of Adam boast more blessings than their father lost. And so he thinks about the precious things which the human race lost in Adam and which are going to be gloriously restored and made up in Christ Jesus, the last Adam. First, with reference to God, Christ's blood-bought ones once enjoyed in their father Adam divine likeness let us make man in our own image says in our own likeness says God but that likeness has been defiled and debased like the king's superscription on the coin which has been worn for many a year you cannot tell whose image and superscription it now is well yes but God is going to stamp his image again into the soul of every creature who belongs to him we've lost two by nature the divine favour. There is no longer a smile of God upon us because of sin, but in Christ that smile is fully restored. A love not just of good will, but of gracious acts, that now God loves us, Spurgeon says, as much as he did Adam. I think you'd have to say more than he did Adam, because he loves us in Christ Jesus. Adam then also had the celestial boon, the, the heavenly blessing of divine fellowship. The Lord God walked with Adam in the garden, and now God is walking with us again. We have him in Christ. We have Emmanuel, God, with us. And in Christ, we have communion with God by his spirit. Then Adam had lost happiness, and we have Blessing restored. Christ wins back the glorious happiness which Adam lost for you. Adam lost the right to live. He was told he should surely die. But Christ has brought immortality to light by the gospel, and because he lives, we shall live also. Yet again, Adam was a king and we shall be restored and sit together with Christ Jesus. Adam lost sonship, but in Christ we have received the adoption. You see how Spurgeon here, and again, here's that overarching sense of how the scripture holds together, dead in Adam, but alive in Christ, lost in Adam, but in Christ restored. And it's not just that you have these things back, but that in Christ, divine likeness, divine favor, divine fellowship, true happiness, kingly dignity and real sonship are all granted to us. Whatever Adam lost, Christ has found and infinitely more. It's a Christ-centered hermeneutic or principle of interpretation. And it's what allows Spurgeon to take that phrase from Exodus that not one hoof shall be lost and to say this is but a picture of that great redemption which God has accomplished in the purpose of his son. And then he wants us to know too that Christ will have the whole earth. Now uh, here he seems to be in his uh, perhaps more typical mode of saying that uh, Christ is going to see the gospel conquer through all the earth and every knee shall bow to him before the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. But he also seems to be reaching forward to the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, uh, if you're an uh, a millennial, I think you can Uh, enjoy some of this and take it. If you're not, you might wonder if Spurgeon himself is being a little bit inconsistent. Um, He sort of moves from time to eternity and and back again. But I think his sense is at least positive. And uh, if you can't all uh, go every step of the way with him, I'd like to think you can at least travel in the same direction as him and at last come all to the right point. So he he wants us to understand that there's no nation that will not belong to Jesus Christ, that the gospel must go out into all the earth. And if you're not quite so sanguine as Spurgeon, if you're not quite so optimistic that uh, in our own day and age, we will see nations bowing to the King of Kings, then I hope you're at least optimistic enough in terms of the Bible promises to believe that the gospel will be preached in all the earth and that the elect will be gathered in, that there will be no place where the darkness is permitted to reign, that there will be no kingdom where the kingdom of Christ is not being established, that there will be no mountain range, no jungle, no uh, field, no uh, no place in all the earth where Christ will not find out those who belong to him. And so, soldiers of Christ, to the battle, to the battle. All the line, all the rampart must be stormed. Not a single castle left in the possession of the enemy. We must dash him down from his hills and rend him up from his valleys. He must not have a single spot whereon to place his foot. You see, if Christ has people in every place, then Christ's people must go to every place in order to find those who also belong to him. Wait a little while, labour a little longer, and he that will come shall come and will not tarry. Then shall the world see, and hell shall tremble at the sight, that Christ has conquered and has taken back all his possessions. Not a hoof shall be left behind. And now, three questions to apply it Spurgeon has this glorious vision this uh, great understanding every one of Christ's people redeemed in his or her entirety all the people redeemed in their entirety everything that they lost restored to them more abundantly in Christ Jesus and finally the whole globe bowing again to Christ as King of kings and Lord of lords. So, first question, on whose side are you, O man, O woman? Do you belong to Christ or do you belong to Satan? Remember what is at stake, for if you are not Christ's, then hell must have you. If you belong to Christ, then he must take you. Then, if you hope you are Christ's, remember that Christ's motto is either Caesar or nothing. Christ will be king in your hearts, king, emperor, or nothing at all. Are you then wholly Christ's? No one is a bit Christ's. No one is partially a Christian. No one is slightly belonging to Jesus of Nazareth. If you are Christ's, then you are his, not yet perfectly, but wholly in intent. Every part of you belonging to him, and in every part of you, sin being overcome, grace triumphing. So then you would pray. God, Great God, sanctify me wholly, spirit, soul, and body. Take full possession of all my powers, all my members, all my goods, and all my hours. All I am and all I have, take me and make me what thou wouldst have me to be. That's the prayer of a Christian. And then the last question. I fear I am not Christ's, but I wish to be. Is that a sincere wish? Then you are truly happy, happy, happy thrice happy for you could not even wish to be Christ's unless Christ's grace had made you wish this is typical of Spurgeon you you might have heard us mention this kind of uh, instinct before that he's so persuaded that man is dead in his trespasses and sins by nature that the merest appetite for Christ the least hint the 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 that the smallest degree of desire for the Lord Jesus is for Spurgeon, an indication that the spirit is at work in the soul. And so if you will to have Christ, there's no question about Christ's willingness to have you. Now, I'm not sure if you've ever heard a sermon on that text, not a hoof shall be left behind. It's one of those where you think, oh, where's he going to go with this, perhaps? Exodus 10, 26, and just a phrase within it. But I would say that taking a proper line through this understanding of the Scripture, how the old prefigures the new, how there are these particular types and shadows, how the Exodus as a whole is quite clearly a, an Old Testament counterpart to the New Testament reality, Here is Spurgeon showing us that that principle of total redemption, full redemption, is as true, if not truer, in the new covenant in the blood of Jesus Christ as it was when God brought his people up out of Egypt. And then there's this challenge and this comfort then that runs all the way through. My friend, if you are redeemed, Christ has all that you are and all that you have. If you are part of the church, then not a one shall be left behind and the saving purposes of God shall be accomplished so that all his redeemed are brought in. Then everything that was lost in Adam shall be more than restored in Jesus Christ so that everything that now we lack, everything that we have lost, everything that has been ripped away from us by our sin and our slavery to Satan is going to be restored by the last Adam and our liberty in him. And then Christ shall have the whole world. Again, every one of his people in every kingdom, tribe, tongue, and nation will be his, and ultimately every one shall bow to him. Yes, there shall be some who are brought low and cast out, rebels still and under his foot, because he must have the preeminence in everything. And those who know him and those who love him, belonging to him, and the whole world then redeemed and restored a cosmic salvation a cosmic redemption so that in the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness dwells Christ shall reign entirely and nothing that offends nothing that transgresses no sin no darkness no misery shall ever have its place how important then are those questions with which we close to whom do you belong on whose side do you stand? Are you wholly Jesus Christ's? And if you are not, but you wish to be, take comfort and cry out for salvation, and all those who come to him he will by no means cast out. Well, may God bless us in the consideration of this full redemption, and I hope you'll join us next time for Sermon 312 on Psalm 116 verse 16, on personal service. We hope to see you next time, and may God bless you in the meantime. Thank you for listening. I'm Jeremy Walker, and From the Heart of Spurgeon is a podcast from Media Gratii. For more resources like this, including a biographical film of Spurgeon's life and labours, visit mediagratii.org.